Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I am thrilled to share this episode with you, an episode with the one and only Boyd Vardy. I encountered uh, Boyd's book, A Lion Tracker's Guide to Life, and could not put it down. I then, on a, on a trip uh, through the wilds of California, listened to his podcast, which was a 40-day solo broadcast from the wild eastern part of South Africa. And, you know, listening to a true storyteller and listening to his stories and how the metaphor of tracking a lion is so apt to those of us who are seeking our track, especially, I think, in this current period in time where footing can feel very uncertain and insecure. Uh, As we record this, we're amidst the time of covid And I think this is one of the most powerful conversations I've ever had on the podcast. I think you will get tremendous value out of it. We talk about a variety of different subjects, but I also share more deeply than I ever have before about my own personal journey, you know, about how we can transmute trauma into triumph, if you will, as it relates to being on track on our own unique path. And we go deep into how even our perception of our goals can in some ways be off-putting and take us off track. And the notion of there not actually really being a true off-trackness. There's only the not here, which is a really beautiful analogy I think you guys are going to love. So there's this really beautiful metaphor of, of the track, and it's all related to very real and extraordinary stories from being attacked by a crocodile personally to a variety of different traumas that, that Boyd used to channel energy towards this now calling, this path of, of using the metaphor of the track to help people in their own journey through life. So I think you're going to get an absolutely tremendous amount of value. I love the conversation. I can't wait for you to listen. Now, keep in mind, this was recorded uh, over Skype uh, to a very remote part of South Africa, and I've spent a good couple hours cleaning up the audio as best I can, but treat it almost like you would like a BBC radio broadcast. Occasionally, there's going to be a small digital delay, but that's just a fact of recording to an absolutely epic place, but with limited bandwidth on the other side of the world. I think the quality of the content so far outweighs it. You're not even going to notice, but I just I think it's it worth it's worth mentioning. Now, this episode is brought to you by One Farm by Wayab. One Farm is my go-to CBD company. So, one of the things I talk about in this episode is how I had uh, previously dealt with uh, an anxiety uh, issue. And amidst this time of, I think, heightened anxiety, I've been finding CBD to be a really beautiful part of my practice in terms of, you know, complementing my meditation. And, you know, the endocannabinoid system is is a deep part of our human physiology. And I've found that high quality CBD has a a real big role in helping me maintain a sense of balance and well-being. And what I love about One Farm is they have super high quality products, right? This is hand-picked or everything is organic. Uh, They differentiate from so many other uh, competitors in the field. And so I was honored when I was connected to them uh, by a mutual friend, again, Kyle Kingsbury. 
and just absolutely have fallen in love with their product, use it every day. So highly recommend you check it out. If you go to one farm backslash peak, which I'll link below in the show notes and put in peak mind at checkout, you'll get 20% off your order. And uh, yeah, could not speak highly enough of the product. I used both their skin lotion with the turmeric um, uh, as a lotion, as well as the lemon is my favorite in terms of the, uh, the drops, the CBD drops. So check them out. One farm backslash peak and peak mind to check out. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce the one and only Boyd Vardy. All right. I'm here with Boyd Vardy. Boyd, it's a pleasure to, uh, to connect with you, my man. Yeah, thanks so much for having me from uh, different ends of the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for those listening, uh, Boyd just came out of a beautiful 40-day solo journey on his, uh, on his incredible reserve, Londolozi, uh, in the wild eastern part of South Africa, which actually, I haven't shared this with you, Boyd, but um, so during, during this period in time, my father, who's my, kind of my heart and soul, uh, he passed um, about a month ago. And one of the best things, maybe the best thing I've ever done in my life was when he was diagnosed, he, he passed of cognitive decline. And when he, when he was diagnosed back in 2011, I said, I'll take you anywhere in the world you want to go. And I wound up taking him actually to South Africa. Um, and we actually were not too far from, from where, where your treehouse was uh, it, for, for a good period of time and some of my fondest memories were with him in that, in that neck of the woods. So I was really, um, it was really moving as I go through my own period of sort of reconciliation and mourning, et cetera, to listen to your, your broadcasts, your solo broadcasts from the, from that tree. So it brought me back. So thank you so much for, for, for what you shared. Um, and for the benefit of the audience, can you just give a little bit of context into, um, yeah, sort of your history with that land? Sure, absolutely. And, and uh, firstly, let me just say it's so, so wonderful that you had those memories uh, with your father there. And uh, I'm glad that you were able to return to that time with him via the stories. Yes. Um, so my, my history with the land actually begins uh, with the intake of large quantities of gin and tonic. And the story <laughs> begins like many good stories with the intake of gin and tonic. But it begins with my great-grandfather. In 1926, he was... Uh, having a few gins at a tennis party and he heard about a bankrupt cattle farm in the wild Eastern part of South Africa. And the farm was bankrupt for two reasons. One, it was a bad area to run cattle, very low rainfall. And another is that lions were eating a lot of the cattle. And my great grandfather was quite a wild man. He was, he was an adventurer and sight unseen out of a, in a moment, out of a place deep inside of him, he said, I'm going to buy that place. I'm going to go there. And so that day they bought it. Came down for the first time in the June of 1926. And it was just this wild expanse um, in, in the eastern part of South Africa. The next year he brought his family back. Uh, the next year they came back. They would come down in the winter months so that you didn't get malaria. And they would hunt lions, um, which is in itself its, its own kind of terrifying pastime. And that is the rhythm that my family lived in. They lived in three mud huts. Um, they would wake up before dawn, listen for a lion to roar, and then they would go and try and find it. And the consciousness of that time was hunting. Um, the area, the area had game. It was renowned for the animals that were there, but you didn't see them because they had been hunted. So if they saw a person, they were trying to get out of there. And 
really for three generations, that's what my family did. They went there, they lived next to the river, they lived rough and they hunted lions. That's how my great grandfather grew up. That's how my grandfather grew up. That's how my father and uncle grew up. And then in 1969 was one of our first real defining moments. My grandfather died very suddenly. My father was 15 years old and my uncle was 17 years old. And in the wake of that loss, um, they gathered in Johannesburg and all of the family advisors said, well, first things first, get rid of that place. Uh, hunting lions is dangerous. Lions eat people. It's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you got to get rid of it. And again, very, and what became very interesting to me is out of a place very deep in my father, out of a kind of knowing, he stood up as a 15-year-old and he said to these much older captains of industry in their fields, and he said, we're going to keep it. Something in me says, I know to keep it. And they said, well, young man, how do you plan to look after your mother now? You know? And he said, we'll make the land pay. Like we'll, we'll, we'll make it viable. And that's how my family got into the safari business. Uh, and really then the story goes that my father and my uncle, 15 and 17, launched the safari business and it was a shambles of a business. They would live, uh, they would all live in these mud huts and then <laughs> and the few clients they could get would come down on the weekends. They would move out and go live in a trailer behind the huts and they were young and no one knew what they were doing. They would get the guests in and just have a good time with them. Um, Often people wouldn't see any animals, but they would have a good time because these two young guys were really enthusiastic that take them to swim in the river, take them tracking. And so it was, they just kind of ran the place on wildness and, but nothing was really happening. I mean, it was like a, it was a garage operation. Um, and then the next defining moment, and this is really this, what happened, um, which I'll tell you in a second, this is what really affected my psyche in some ways. So the next defining moment was the arrival of a man there called Ken Tinley. And Ken was this athletic, like Clint Eastwood look-alike. He was a maverick conservationist. Um, he was a high school dropout who had been admitted into a biological sciences degree because he drew a picture of a butterfly with such intricate detail that the dean of the faculty put him in he had lived alone in a wild part of Mozambique for about a year alone in total solitude while he did his PhD. And during that time, I think he underwent a kind of shift in consciousness. It was like Ken could feel the land. He could feel where the rivers flowed. It was like he could feel it moving in his own body. He had such a relationship with landscape. And he met these two young boys who had this piece of land that was covered in scrub, um, the land had been overgrazed and as a result, a thick scrub had come up all over it. They were trying to start a, a safari business. They didn't know what they were doing. Um, there were animals there, but you didn't see them. And he said to them, if you want this place to work, you need to partner with the land. You need to think of the land as your partner. You need to think of the animals as your kin. And you need to involve the local people who live in these areas in this process. And they said, well, what do you mean think of the land as our partner? And he said, come, I'll show you. And he took them out to all the areas on the reserve where the cattle had grazed the land bare. And there where the rain had fallen, instead of going into the ground, it had run off. And where it had run off, the scrub had come up. And he showed them how you could clear that scrub and you could start to take it where the moisture was being lost and you pack the scrub in where you're losing the moisture in these deep erosive furrows. And as you do that, the grassland starts to come back. And so 
all through my childhood, I remember watching the land literally be restored around me. I started to see it heal. I started to see the land get cleared. I started to see grasslands return. I saw elephants return. I saw huge herds of wildebeest return. It was like as they started to work with the land and as they started to think of nature as their partner, it started to come back to life. And so I grew up inside of watching a restoration. You know, where most people grow up watching the destruction of nature, I saw the relationship with nature. I saw what happened when you reached out to nature. Um, into the midst of this, one day these two young guys, these guys were driving home by then they, you know, I think I was a, like a one-year-old by then or something and time had gone by. Um, they were driving home and a leopard stepped out onto the road. And before then you, you didn't see a leopard. If, if you saw a leopard, it was trying to get away from you. It had been hunted. This leopard stopped and she turned and she looked at them. And there was like a moment of connection. And they drove home in silence, and then she sort of disappeared into the bush. They drove home in silence, and then my uncle said to my father, again, from that place, he said, whatever just happened, that's my future. Um, and I've always been, you know, I've been astounded by that, that idea of, like, knowing something when you see it. Um, and for the next 12 years, him and a Shanghai tracker went out every day, and they followed that leopard. And over time... They, you know, weeks and months would go by, they wouldn't see her. Then they would see her and they would watch her from you know, a big distance. And then over time, the distance closed. She realized that they meant her no harm. And she became known as the mother leopard for two reasons. One, because she had a number of litter of cubs. And all of her cubs grew up realizing that the hunting, had, we had done away with the hunting and there was a relationship building. And we also called her the mother because word got out all over the world that there was a place where you could go and see a wild leopard. And that like stuck in the mind of people. And suddenly this like rickety tickety safari business had people starting to arrive and we would take them out and we would show them a leopard that would allow herself to be seen. We would show them animals that realized we meant them no harm, totally wild. Um, and that, that just took flight. Um, in a time when South Africa was in a very difficult time, when, you know, when things were not good, people would come. And so what I learned out of that was that um, what I saw was healing. You know? What I grew up inside of was in some kind of healing of a relationship. And what I saw around me was when something heals, it has a natural kind of pull and it creates more healing. Um, and, and that stayed in my mind and I didn't really understand it until I was older and I was working as a safari guide and, and, I, and I met my first mentor. And in that moment, my life pivoted from being like a young South African safari guide. Um, she was an incredible healer. She helped me heal. She taught me the arts of healing. And I realized that, that everything that I had grown up with, um, it, it was, you could apply the restoration of the land. It was the same as helping a person heal. You know, it was the same as, and I realized that the land has to heal, but we have to heal. And, and those two things are very connected. And so that's, that was the beginning of my journey with that land, that it's generational and, it's, and it continues to be the thing that teaches me, the land itself. 
I think that's so beautiful uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I just want to mention for those listening, I mean, Londolozi became uh, the, the land that, that you have you have cared for and nurtured as a steward uh, was a place that Nelson Mandela came, for example, when he needed uh, to clear his mind. And and I think it's I think it's so interesting to think about when you steward something, the degree to which you are then inviting in. And, and that story of the leopard to me is so beautiful. And I feel like really, quite honestly, very timely because without getting into, you know, sidetracked, so to speak, I think we, we are recording this for the benefit of the audience in the, in the, in the midst of a pandemic, right? One where you chose to, and I, I've um, very graciously listened to, to, to your stories, you, you kind of went back into the land and, and, and into the listening around the land. And one of the things that's come to me in my listening is I feel like there's this great guy. I think I feel like in a way uh, there's a guy in wake up call that's that's come in the form of a virus. Uh, is, and and I, I think a lot of it is waking us up to our interdependence and interconnection to nature. Uh, because if someone's breath uh, on one part of the world can impact and 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 frankly have profound impacts on on the livelihood of another on the other side of the world, I think the the fallacy of the sort of city on the hill individuality is in some ways uh is some ways demonstrated um but one of the things that i love to bring it back to to your story is the the way that you draw the parallel between the land uh that you rehabilitated and your own personal story and having you know read the book and and learning of some of the traumas i, I know many listening including myself have, have also gone through some some pretty deep uh personal traumas and I love how you kind of draw the analogy of using the scrub and starting to sort of work with the land such that that healing could take place and, and that restoration could enable the, the sort of flowering forth of the land. Can you give a little context into some of the personal co- with the crocodile and, 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 the, and, and also, you know, sort of the gang, like the home invasion or whatnot? Like, can you just give a little bit of context of where you come from was? And then how that journey with the healer sort of was an arresting of that phase or, or, or initiation into the next phase. Yeah, I mean, you know, growing up in South Africa at a very young there were a few things that happened to me uh, sort of in my late teens. Um, there was a lot of trouble around. And during that time, um, myself and my sister and my mother went through a situation. We were staying at a house in Johannesburg and the house was essentially um, invaded and we were taken hostage for a couple of hours. And it was a deeply, uh, for a young guy like myself, I had this idea that I must try and protect my family. And it was just a deeply terrifying experience to see uh, people that really tied up around you at gunpoint. And at that time, those sort of situations usually ended uh, very badly. Very soon on the heels of that, uh, I was down in the river one day. There was a place where a sandbank fell away. And I was standing on the, or sort of sitting on the edge of that sandbank and there was a crocodile that, in the water that I, that I should have been aware of, but I wasn't. And, you know, it's a funny thing about trauma is that sometimes once you become traumatized, it's almost like it starts to perpetuate itself. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that's why healing is so important because there's this weird way in which trauma tries to recreate itself. So then that happened and it felt like on the back end of this other experience. And then very soon after that, um, my family got involved in a very legal situation, but it's like, there's no truth in it. It's just about who's got the right money. And so there were these three very defining encounters into this psyche. And by the time I was 
23, I was like totally burnt out. Something had, the lights had gone off. I was struggling with a combination of pretty severe depression and some anxiety. Um, and more than that, I just felt for a, for someone in their twenties, absolutely jaded. Like I did not want to participate in this thing that we were in. Um, and into the midst of that, I met this woman, she came on safari and it was one of those strange things. A friend of mine who was also a guide had said, you know, there's this woman coming, I've taken her on safaris and she's an amazing martial artist. And like something inside of me just like pinged. So oh, I'm into martial arts. So I went into the guide's room and I rubbed her name off this board where the guide got assigned to the clients. I rubbed my, someone else's name off and I put my name to be her guide. And when we met and we were talking and I remember she, one of the things she said to me that like grabbed me, she said, the restoration of our relationship with nature will come out of a shift in human consciousness. And I remember driving around and, and hearing her say that say, and just like almost just like knowing something about that is my life path. Something in, in here went, yes. Um, and then a uh, then funny story about a few days into me being her guide, she, she looked at me and she was an amazing healer. I didn't even know what a healer was at the time. I was drinking beer and playing rugby. And after a morning safari, she looked at me, she said, you know, I'm, I'm ready to talk to you whenever you're ready. And I was like, I'm holding my rifle. I'm standing next to the safari track. I'm like, Oh, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and she just, she had this incredible, she said, um, you know, I can see how much you're holding and I'm here. And there was something about being seen like that. And with this like shut down placed inside myself. And there was something about the quality of her presence and the way she saw I was putting on my best act and it just broke me. And I started to cry standing there next to my truck, holding my rifle. And this woman held me. And, um, that was the beginning of my journey to healing. She's just an incredible healer. Her name's Martha Beck. She started to mentor me. She started to teach me. She started to put me through my own process of healing. At the same time, she started to take me to ceremonies. She started to, um, show, she started to take me to workshops. She was running where people would heal. And I got introduced to the world of, of healing and how you create a process. And some of the things that I saw there, you know, reminded me of the land, like, you know, when the rain falls and the land has been traumatized and stripped bare, the rain falls and the very thing the land needs, it can't absorb. It runs off. The water runs off. When a person has been traumatized and they need care and they need love, they can't let it in. They're afraid of it. And so what started to happen for me is everywhere I went and I met a person who, had, who was carrying something who needed to heal, I saw... I saw a wild landscape. I saw a person who was covered in a, a defensive scrub that had come up to defend them from the trauma. And I knew that underneath that was something wild that wanted to come back to life. And all it needed was, you know, to start to go in there and start to clear out a little bit. And it looked destructive at first when you started to change those patterns of compensation that people had developed and you start to open it up. But underneath there was always something beautiful, a gift, um, a medicine, a uniqueness that, that started to come to life. And so as I healed, I learned the art of healing. You know, as I started to heal and then, and then become a healer, I realized and, that this art form that I had grown up with, which I had grown up tracking animals, I had grown up like, as an apprentice of some of the best animal trackers in the world. As I started to work with people more deeply, I started to realize that healing is a kind of tracking. And the discovery of our medicine way, our gifts in life requires tracking. 
anytime we want to make an original path in life, um, there are no, you can't look at life and say, I'm going to do this and this. It has to come out of you and you need the skills of a tracker there. And then that was really interesting because this art form that I'd grown up with became something totally different to me. And I started to feel myself in the archetype of the healer, but also the archetype of the tracker, but it wasn't just tracking animals. It was, it was tracking trauma and then the art form of how we make a unique path in life. So it was like, I hope this makes sense, but like these very strange components that made me one this growing up inside of a restoration, growing up as an animal tracker and then healing from this trauma, these, the strange Venn diagram came together, something that I could never have imagined. I, I just sort of felt my way to it. Uh, and, and then, and then that became my path. Um, and that's the path that I now work on. And I, I say to people that, you know, the modern culture, it presents us continuously with a series of ideals. And it says to you, if you achieve these ideals, then you'll be happy. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's a barrage. And one of two things happen. Either you achieve the ideals, you know, um, and you realize, well, that's not it. Or you live in the strange, like, downloaded psyche of I'm never quite there. You know, it's, I'm never quite where I should be. It's never quite. And, it, and that is like built into the nature of, of modern life, this feeling of like, okay, well, so you can never really win. You achieve it, it's not it, or you feel like you're never achieving it. And so then you arrive at this place in your life where you say, well, none of the, none of this is really bringing the meaning. None, none of this is, is where I can bring myself. And that's where the path of the tracker begins because mm -hmm. in that moment you realize that you can't look to the, the ideals of modern life for your own and your purpose mission. You need to develop a totally different set of metrics and those metrics have to, have to come out of a place inside of you. And in order to discover that path, you need the skills and tools of a tracker. Mm. Beautifully said, my man. Um, I feel like so much of the uh, of what you shared, I think, resonates with me personally, and I imagine with many who are listening. In that, you know, I think the tr the trauma can become, you know, I actually I studied with a, a few healers myself, and one of them was a was a beautiful shaman, and he, he he said that pain and trauma is the horse that beauty rides, and that ostensibly a lot of the shit that happens to us can, if we work with it become the spiritual compost for new gardens, right? And, and I think that that's really beautiful because I think we have, we do have this fallacy that's perpetuated largely across our culture and in fact fuels the sort of the engines that be, so to speak, in terms of, oh, if only I have this, then I'll be happy, right? Which is totally, totally backwards, right? It's from, and I imagine you probably have been reminded of this more than um, almost anyone because for the last 40 days, you've just been being, right? Like it hasn't been about the havingness of anything in terms of like, oh, if I have the perfect house, if I have the perfect girlfriend, if I have, then I'll be, right? And it, which, which is the great fallacy, I think many of us are so on and this, I don't want to say false track, but basically in some ways, this kind of illusion that many of us pursue with the promised land of, 
you know, happiness being arrived to, right? And, and I feel like that arrival, and part of what I love about the metaphor of the track is it doesn't, you, you can come encounter with the leopard or you can come encounter with the lion, but there's not a, you know, it's still a, it's still an evolving process. There's no end, at least in my mind, there's no end to the track. It's just, it's just the sense of feeling of like, of being, being um, in the true north of, of who you are. And like that notion of, of following uh, that, which is in deep resonance with, 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 I like to use met, uh, my background of studying a music festival. So for, for me, I, that's what I relate to, but that notion of finding your true song, right? Like that notion of like, Oh, okay. These are the elements kind of like what you're talking about when you're tracking and you hear the bird and you're in flow, like those notions of the bird calls or the way the animals. And it's like, when you ha- enter that flow state, it's like that feeling of like the musicality of nature, sort of letting you know that you're on track. Um, but I love that. I love that metaphor. And I love the fact that you have, that you kind of found and used that that compost from the sh- the crap, frankly, that you experienced as part of the Venn diagram, which was your on trackness. What, what what have you found in the context? Because I know you did a lot of deep healing work for for a number of years and apprenticed, as I understand it, with um, with an amazing shaman and 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 you sort of all these different tools became tools in your toolbox. Um, now coming back to this land, which was such a deep part of your, or your, your lineage and having spent now 40 days recently, and I know you're just very much in the integration, um, but having listened to that journey day in, day out on my own journey on the road, um, what, what's coming to you as part of this integration process? Uh, you know, there were a few things obviously that you mentioned that you would, that you would mention on a day-to-day basis as your, as your sort of your learnings or your takeaways. But I think very, very often we don't have in part of what, just for those listening who haven't yet listened to the show, which I highly recommend um, you had talked about this quest of, of the mystic in nature, right? Like the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree. There, there's, there's a very long lineage of, of those going out into nature to be what I call in the listening, but like to find that inner track. What, what, what were some of the insights that you garnered during that time? Uh, Michael, you know, there's, there's a first one and the strongest one that came out um, is that I'm very aware of a comparative dynamic. You know, this, what you were saying about this, like there's always this next thing, but the other thing that's built into sort of that illusion of modern life without knowing it, part of finding out where you are is you compare yourself constantly. Um, and, and it's just like, you can't get away from it. It's just this comparative dynamic all the time. And you're always like then being positioned in this like how successful I am, where am I at? I'm not where I should be in my career yet. The relationships, it's just this comparative place. When you go into nature and with that comparison, a funny thing happens. It's like your own ego objectifies you. You start thinking of yourself as a thing and you start saying like, you know, how's Boyd doing? Boyd's not where he should be. Um, Boyd hasn't made it to, uh, Boyd could be doing better. Boyd's resting too much. Boyd's being lazy. And there's this strange, like, like you're almost like this third thing. And what I discovered is that it's very inhumane to think of yourself like that. The first thing that happens when you go into nature is it takes about three days. Um, the Aboriginal people say modern culture is three days deep. And after three days with no, just being alone out there, you feel it's like, man, it's like a shell comes off you. And you stop being a concept of yourself, even, and you become yourself. You're just there. 
And, and there is nothing judging and there is no comparison. In fact, what there is in place of judgment and comparison is relation. You start to feel yourself like in, in this very deep connection with everything. Um, and what happens as you get stiller or what happened for me is you realize that there's an incredible intelligence around you. And there's patterns to the way the animals move. There's genius to the way spiders spin webs. Everything has a rhythm. They, they move with the temperature. Trees know how to bud. Um, flowers know how to bloom. It's not random. It, it's all interconnected intelligences. And that, and that becomes impossible to miss. There's a rhythm to life out there. Life itself is animating itself. And, and what starts to happen is you start to realize, like, it becomes impossible not to know I am part of that intelligence. The same thing that knows when to open these flowers, the same way that the animals move with the changing in, in daylight and sunlight, that intelligence, I'm a part of it. It's in me. I am of it. When I look at those stars and then the relational nature of it is you start to look at the stars and you start to feel I am part of that infinity. You start to, um, you start to like sit by the river and know I'm a part of the life that is burgeoning here. And that dynamic is, it's just incredibly gentle to know that I'm a part of this. And what you were saying earlier, it's almost like about COVID and this idea that like, I feel like we can sometimes conceptually, we know we connected, but once you get still and you start to feel yourself in nature like that, and I'm sure that's why the mystics went. So it's the relational nature of life. I, I get to know myself by being in the presence of these other creatures and this intelligence. Um, and it's very hard to almost put into words because you just start to feel it. Mm -hmm. So the relational nature would, would, I would say is first. Um, the next is a kind of, um, tackle some, you know, I, you just you wake up in the morning you walk on the land, your body falls into a circadian rhythm. All the little jobs you do um, are very real. You know, whether you've got to make a fire, whether you've got to go cut some wood, whether you've got to, the, the animals are, if you walk into a herd of elephants, you've got to navigate around them. You've got to make sure what, you know, you don't get stepped on. You've got to make sure it's very real. It's not happening over here. Uh, and that simple tactile nature of life, um, it's almost like meaning is just naturally there. It's, you, there's no thinking about like, how could I make this experience meaningful? It just is like everything you're doing comes to life around you. And what I felt very strongly was that when you put your attention on life, literally aliveness, you become more alive. Um, so there was a simplicity. The other thing that came to me is without my, I had books, but without diving into news, uh, feeds, um, you know, messages, email, without diving into that, a huge space opened up for imagination. Mm. And I just, I, I had felt, I've been on the road a lot. When I'm on the road, you know, I'm as bad as anyone. Like I'm in, I'm in it, you know, I'm on the phone. And, but without that, I felt the space open up in my mind. I started imagining, I started dreaming, I started thinking, I started, I just felt like more alive in my mindset. Um, so those were like three big markers, um, and then just stillness. You know, there were times where I would just sit down by my fire and I would just be there. There was no, I wasn't even thinking, I wasn't thinking about what I should do. And hours could go by. And I realized that we lived like this for many, many years. You would just sit in this open state of being 
And then a kind of knowing of something that you had to do would arise and I would go and attend to it. Um, I mean, it was just the one night I got caught in a storm. Uh, I mm-hmm. got caught in a massive thunderstorm and these blades of lightning were coming down around me. And what I, what I realized is that, man, there is a difference between being anxious and true fear. Like when you are really encountering your own mortality, blades of lightning were coming down around me. I could smell it in the air. And, and again, it was like this encounter with true fear, but it was also this encounter with something so mighty and powerful, um, that I was, I was humbled by it. And I, I, I discovered humility in relation with that encounter, you know? And so there was many things like that. I, I, I just felt so in tune with, with an intelligence, um, that I'm a part of. Mm. So beautifully said. I, I have yet to do like a 40 day deep dive, but I've found, I did a, a, about a seven day vision fast up in a place called the lost coast in Northern California. And it's the only piece of land from Mexico to Canada along the the West coast of the United States that doesn't have the one highway. It was too rugged. And so they had to move the highway in about 40 miles. So years ago, when I was in a bit of a dark night of the soul, I did, uh, I walked in and there was no, it's, it's amazing to be in a place where you see no, I think I saw in the first day, maybe I saw like three other humans, but aside from that, it was basically just me and the waves and the redwoods that had washed up as it would have been 300 years ago on the coast of California. And sitting there, like you said, by the fire, and I'm, I have a deep resonance with, with, with the water. And so the, the, the rhythm of the ocean waves mm. to be in that kind of the clock, the, the timeliness, if you will, of that ancient rhythm. Uh, for, like you said, about four or five days in, the thing that I noticed was an acute uh, sensitivity probably isn't the right word. But again, that notion of being in the listening, I started to hear things in a different way and going to bathe in a waterfall, you know, just naked as the day I was born and then come back out and like you said, tend to the fire. And and part of that was likely also the fasting. But I think that that notion of tuning back into that sense of, of connectedness. And I've, I've seen that as well. And I uh, sense that you've perhaps shared some of those experiences, but you know, in, in, in a lot of the wisdom of the indigenous, and I've been great, greatly fortunate to go on men's business, for example, with an Aboriginal elder outside of Uluru and, and sit sweat with the DNA, the Navajo, and those kinds of experiences, I feel like tap you into that primordial aspect of our humanity. Um, and I, it, there's, I feel like there's nothing better as, a, as the sort of great reckoning or reminder of who we truly are. The challenge, I feel like, is then in exactly what you, the place you're in, and I think the place that many sort of look to is, is how do you integrate that? And, and the integration to me, <clears throat> you know, you'll see, for example, with ceremony, a lot of people will go and they, and they have these great epiphanies or realizations in the ecstasies, the, you know, the ecstasy of it all, that reckoning of our true nature, that reckoning of our interdependence, our interconnection. Yet when you come back and then you're besieged by the Netflix and the Instagram and the emails, maintaining that, or you come back from nature and you're back in the sort of modern world, maintaining that within the cadence of this, of, of the default quote unquote reality um, can be challenging. But, but, but what I, what I like is I love the notion 
and and I'd love for you to talk about it a little bit of, you know, you talk about first track and you, and, and you also talk about this concept of not here. And I love, I love those conceptually, especially as we think about integration and, and for those listening who maybe have had tastes or feel like they've touched or, or in their listening have felt, oh yeah, this is part of my track. This is part of my calling. This is my music, but yet then feel like, uh Oh, I got blown out to sea or like I got, I got caught, I got thrown off center. And I feel like, um, the, the metaphor of tracking, I think is really beautiful for that because I think so many of us, again, see a path as linear and you feel like if you get off track, oh shit, well, that, that was all for naught because now I'm, you know, I've gone backwards or whatever, you know, I backtracked, but you have a great, um, I think concept in the, in the vision of not here and the, and the, and the, and the vision you have around tracking. And I'd love if you could just share a little bit around your, your vision as it relates to integration and, and, and the notion of the track. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, maybe just to give people a, a little bit of a, a sense of it, you know, the first thing that usually happens when you go tracking, uh, and I, you know, just for, think about it, you're in a vast wilderness and you want to go and track a line where, where we are, we track lines to, so that we can find them and then uh, let people who've come on safari, come and take pictures to find out where they are, see them, view them. Anyway, like a lion roars out there in the vast wilderness and you don't, you, you can get a sense of where it roars but you don't know exactly where it is. You don't know what its mood is. You don't know where it's moving. Like it is steeped with unknowns. And, and that is before you add in the fact that lions can bite people, you know? Um, but if you watch trackers, they are, the first thing they do is they are geared towards going without knowing, you know, they, they start, They'll just hear something and they go. And if you trackers are innately curious, and I always think curiosity really shows you what is innate, like what's essential to you. So the first movement and why, why tracking to me can be like finding this path, integrating, uh, finding your medicine way, you know, whatever you want to call it is like the first thing is, is you go without knowing. Uh, and that's, if you arrive at that juncture in your life, you say like, I don't know how to move forward. I'm not what I was. I'm not what I will be. Okay, and most people will tell you when I know exactly what the next thing is, uh, then I'll do it. It's like, no, we start without knowing. That's the way of the tracker. Begin to tune your attention. If you do that, the next thing that you'll need to do is you need to develop track awareness. And so like what, what trackers do is like he's taught himself to see so many tracks. He's taught himself bird calls. He's taught himself to see. So the idea is, is that if I walk down a path, I see a certain amount of information there, what I've taught myself to see. He walks down the path. He sees like 30, 40 times more information. Mm. And when I started to realize that, that became a super interesting idea to me. The idea that as you go on your journey, there is information, but you have to teach yourself to see it. You know, that's like, you have to teach yourself to tune into it. And one of the things that will have to ha have to happen if you start finding your path is you will have to get out of all the rational ideas of what you should do. And you will have to develop a different set of metrics to like what grabs your attention. So if, for example, one way of developing track awareness is like pay attention to what makes your body feel expansive. Like when you meet someone and you just feel like this energy bursting out of you, you feel yourself going, you, 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 like when you are involved in a task that makes you feel expansive, when you're involved in something that makes you forget about time, you don't need food. You don't need water when you're in it. 
those are the things you have to start teaching yourself to see because they're going to take you to very essential parts of yourself. The next thing is, is you'll need a first track. Like there's a good chance that you won't know the whole way this thing is laid out. In fact, Campbell said, Joseph Campbell said, if you can see your whole life laid out in front of you, it's not your life. Hmm. People who make big changes in their lives are people who work on a first track. And, And what I mean by that is they make a daily consistent small change, uh, you know? So like if you find the track of a lion, it could be anywhere out there in the wilderness, but all you need is the next track and then the next first track and then the next first track. And if you can just get the next first track, you can dial down the infinite possibilities of where that animal might've gone to one moment of presence and then another moment of presence. And so I say to people like I find out one small thing you can do that takes you a little bit closer to something that feels essential to you. One daily choice every day, just work with first tracks. You work with first tracks every single day. After many days, you're going to start being closer to something. So you don't have to know the whole thing. Like today, how do I do something that feels a little more essential to me? How do I come a little closer to what's calling me? Um, One of the things that's important to know is that if you set out to find your authentic path in life, If you set out to live as a tracker, you go without knowing, you develop track awareness, you start moving on first tracks, man, doesn't matter who you are, you are going to lose the track. Mm. And this is really important to know because now you've set off on this journey, you've left the known behind, and now you lose the track. Well, if you don't know in advance that losing the track is part of living as a tracker, well, you just get like, you you get a fright and you think to yourself, shit, we better go back there where it was safe. I'll see if I get myself back into that marketing job, you know, no, losing the track is part of it. Um, when you lose the track and, and this is actually the phase that I'm in right now, when you lose the track, um, there's a few things you can do, but if you watch trackers, what they will do is they go back to where they last had the clear track. And, and you might ask yourself in your own life, when was the last time where I felt absolutely on track? When was the last time I knew I was, I was on my path. People go back years sometimes. And if you look at what you're doing, there'll be hints in there. The other thing that you do is you keep trying things. Our culture is obsessed with knowing the right thing to do. From the time you're in school, you've got to be right. Trackers are organic. Okay, I've lost the track. I'm going to try this. Maybe down this path. I'm going to cut around here. I'm going to so try things. For me, coming out of the tree now, I was so on the track. And then I came back into life. And there was a whole lot of stuff I had to do and I lost the track, but Mm. you know, I lost the track. I had stuff to do. I suddenly got pulled out. I'd been in the six week ceremony, but what's amazing is that the trackers say that, um, (laughs) they, they talk about the path of not here. Um, and anywhere where you don't find the track is part of finding the track again. So when I was pulled out, what it meant was that I realized I could see so clearly that I was back in a, in an old way. And instead of judging it, I just got to watch like, okay, I'm back in my old way, but I had the contrast now to realize that this is not how I want to do it. And so what the ceremony gave me was a, a view, a vision of a different way. And I slipped out of it, but I, I have this, I have this track that I can like, like move towards. And for example, what you were saying in ceremony work, you know, people go in, they touch a place they, and then they lose it completely. 
But the real work of ceremony work, of finding your path, is the integration of realizing I'm going to lose it, um, but I marked a place. Now we got to work out how to live in the world day to day more towards that place. You know? Um, That's it. A little bit more towards it. And that is the real integration. People think the work is in the ceremony. No, the ceremony is where you remember to remember. The ceremony is where you do inner mapping, inner cartography. You plant, you plant something. You plant a flag in a place, in a feeling, in a state. And then the real work starts in the integration post the ceremony. And that's why ceremony work is work. And it, it must be lived. It must come into your daily life. And it's no good just heading off on the weekend and getting out into the mystery and then becoming obsessed with having to be there. You know, to feel good. No, you, you take what you learn there and then you live it. Um, no enlightenment has any power until it's lived in modern life. Um, but, you know, so that's tracking. Uh, go without knowing. Um, teach, develop track awareness, not, rational, not the rational plan, a deeper way of knowing and feeling. Um, work on the first track. Smallest step you can take every day. Understand that you will lose the track when you do. Go back to the last track or try things. Uh, and then the final one, very importantly, is, you know, never track alone if you can. Like, mm. because if you go on the journey to find your, um, I mean, you know this, if you go on the journey to find your authentic life, um, other people will sell you their fears about why it's not possible. Mm. And fears because they're not willing to go on that journey, they'll tell you, you can't do that. So very quickly, if you can get a tribe of other trackers around you, people are saying, you know what, we want to explore living differently. We want to find a more authentic way of living that actually feeds us and nourishes us. And you get people around you like that quickly, then you can support each other. And community is, is so central to that path. Um, otherwise, it can be a lonely and very scary path. Um, so, so building the community is a part of it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just wrapping, man. I hope I'm not too all over the show. No, no, man. You just dropped some some gems, brother. Now, I think what, what it what it what it uh, what it made alive in me, if you will, is the last piece, which is this notion of of your 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 fellow trackers. Um, and you know, part of my, for lack of a better word, um, one of the big track moments for me was I actually live for a period of about two years in Sri Lanka. And I was just in a charm, like you said, kind of following the, the charm of, you know, that's what we say in meditation, right? It's like, uh, you know, you kind of follow what feels good, that, gra that gravity that sort of is pulling you. Um, and I, I got pulled to the Southern coast and it was my first day on the coast. I don't know if I sh ever shared the story with my audience, but, um, and it, you know, I don't know if you've been to Sri Lanka, but the Southern coast, I mean, you think about the waves have moved all the way from Antarctica across the, you know, half of the entire world and their first landing, uh, to sea right in front of me and out of the sea. It was like out of, you know, I mean, this beautiful, like 16 year old Sri Lankan boy with nothing but like shorts and a, and a spear and a tiger octopus, unlike anything I've ever seen before that he had just speared. And, he hand, and I speak the language at this point, I mean, rudimentary, but I, I've been intensively studying for about three months and living with a family, hands me his goggles. And we go out uh, to this island. And at this island, I see a woman speaking uh, in trance, 
uh, speaking, and keep in mind, this is a country at civil war. She's a Tamil woman, and she's in a Sinhalese Buddhist temple, entranced, invoking and speaking. The only reason I know is because my professor's there, who's one of three men who actually would recognize this language, classical uh, Sinhalese. So it would, you know, it'd be like you, you know, yeah, or me speaking some ancient language that we should, theoretically should have no knowledge of. So I was just, in a Western mind, I was... I was invoked and also mind blown. I didn't really know what to do with it. It's a longer story, but to, to share like that sort of highlight, what, what happened is as I, re, I felt a deep aliveness in my inquiry around what that was. And I didn't know what it was, but I felt, I felt pulled by it. And that day I met a man who I would wind up uh, learning from and studying with, a, a, tr- a, a traditional healer in a form of Ayurveda. So there's Ayurvedic medicine, obviously deep, deep, ancient form of medicine, but he studied a particular branch, which is called Bhutavidya, which is actually an, sort of an ancient shamanic art that is oriented around the social aspect of health and healing. And traditionally in Sri Lanka and conceptually, there was no I-ness, right? So like the Western mind, as it relates to the I and my purpose or my path, it didn't really exist because what his words to me is, your path is in a way, he, he, he used the word, the heart rhythm. So, and, and health and healing is, in, is about balance. And so, again, to sort of use the music metaphor, when someone falls out of balance, right? And I'm not talking about a physical ailment, but, you know, in that way that we all sort of fall off track, but to the degree that they can't find their way back, you know, like they're, they're sort of lost at sea, if you will. Then it's his role as an orchestrator, not him in like the individuality of him, although he was the master of 17 different things we would consider to be a master artist of, you know, but only because it was integral to creating the ceremony, the space, right? The, the sort of ritual recreation from sunset to sunrise of their, of their shared cosmological worldview, you know, elaborate palm fraud cities and all of that with the intention of bringing this one part of the whole back into balance, back into rhythm, back into the heartbeat of the collective, right? Because there was no, there was no I, there, there, there was no, there was no word for possession, right? The, yeah. It was literally the we-ness, right? Which was deeply in, integrated with nature. And so I think the last point you mentioned just so evoked that for me, because I also having grown up in the West, you know, often and, and deeply programmed into an I reality, you know, and like, and love things like going into solitude, which I do believe is true medicine. Also, I think there's such an important reckoning on the we, right? And the fact that the we is so, is in essence like the, the, tr- the I don't want to say the true nature, but it, it is in a way like the true reality that oftentimes I think the, the, the part of the way we get off track is we lose track of our we. We lose track of our rhythm as it relates to, to, the, to the space we're sharing and those who carry the same song, right? So not everyone necessarily carries your song or is on the, is on the same track with you. But when you find those people who are, who are willing to make music, um, that's a beautiful gift, you know? And, and, and ho- helping each other to sort of hold that resonance, hold that r- heart rhythm is to me, such a part of it. And I feel like, honestly, a little bit of where I'm at, it's like, I feel like I've shifted tracks a little bit. And it's like, and it's like when I meet, you know, so when I'm listening, for example, we've never met before, but when I listen to your story, not in a like exalted, like, oh, like, like that's the answer, but more in a like, oh, that's charming. You know, like that's, that, that feels right. You know, like, 
or, you know, Kyle Kingsbury, like a mutual, you know, you know, friend of ours or Aubrey, you know, it's like where you're like, oh, okay. Interesting. Like there's some, there's some interesting, you know, or, or the gentleman takes me on men's business. Like you just like following that charm and, and, and feeling into the, the social aspect of that, that path to me is so, um, is so integral. And anyway, there wasn't a question associated, but, but you sparked within me that notion of just like the, the, the feeling back into that deep knowingness. But everything you're saying, I mean, it's so, I mean, because if you're, you're a person who's really on the path to live an authentic life and mm. what starts to happen is you're making up a path. You know, there's, there's all these things you've done. There's all these journeys, but it's like coming out in a very unique, authentic way. But what you were saying is like the part of being in, in Sri Lanka, it's, it's exactly that track awareness thing. There's no rational idea. You're following something else. And that's where I feel like people need help. You have to get in touch with a, what I would call the wild self. The mm. wild self is a part of you that knows what its purpose and mission is. Um, and overlaying the wild self is the social self. And the social self is like all the things you should do and have to do. But if you want to go on the journey to the authentic life, well, you have to start to, as a tracker, put your attention deeper than what you should do or have to do to be successful and learn how your unique uh, tracks speak to you. It might be a feeling. It might be this charm. It may be a way you start to know if something is pulling you um, and, until you suddenly find yourself you know, on a beach in Sri Lanka. And then you, and then you recognize uh, an image of someone who wants to take you somewhere and that, and that pulls you forward. And all the way, it's not, you couldn't rationally do it. It's once you start living from this different place, it starts to unfold for you. So that's the one part. And then the other part is I love what you're saying about this idea of like uh, a concept of healing, a concept of self bigger than I, because in some ways, you know, um, this like everyone is so obsessed with, um, you know, making your best life or whatever. And it's, and it has even been perverted slightly by the culture, but in, in South Africa, they talk about Ubuntu. They say, I am because of you. I get to discover the deepest parts of my humanity in relation with you. This, if we don't hold the love and the recognition, our relationship with nature, our relationship with others, all healing is about we, if we don't hold that recognition, then what we fall into is a kind of self-indulgent narcissism, you know, that is all about getting, getting my process to be my best life. And I, I want to, and we lose that thing that what we're actually doing here is about remembering the we, remembering the interconnectedness. And it's about, ah, oh man, that's such a beautiful notion of like bringing what, like what it takes to bring us all back into the feeling of belonging. And that feeling of belonging is the feeling of being in rhythm, you know, uniquely yourself. But by being uniquely yourself, you're a part of this much bigger unfolding. So there's just like, I just think that's an incredible story. Yeah, thanks, brother. I, it's, it's interesting because I, in listening to your story, right, I, I see the different pieces. You know, I see, I could see how the trauma would have informed you. I could see how even inheriting this great potential gift in the form of this land could to a 20 year old who's, who kind of grew up with it, you know, be like, well, F this, I'm, you know, I've got, I got other things I want to do, you know? And then I could also see the coming home. Like I could feel all of that. And also the, the way in which the trauma almost was the, the thing you needed to move through to come back home, if you will, in, in that notion of full circleness. Because in the context of Sri Lanka, without going into, I don't want to make it, it's about me. It's just to say, I actually got jumped by a gang in Spain, my first experience alone and abroad. 
And it was deeply traumatic for a variety of reasons, but it was actually going to Sri Lanka that was me confronting the neuroses that actually evolved from that trauma, right? Like I developed an obsessive compulsive personality. Well, I was told to go on medication, et cetera. But I looked into it and I was like, okay, I've had trauma, but actually what am I doing? I'm trying to ritualize to assuage my sense of anxiety, right? I'm checking the door. I'm looking at the, you know, making sure the oven's off 10 times before I leave the house. But actually I'm basically doing what humans have been doing since time immemorial, basically ritualizing their reality. I just didn't grow up in a, in a culture or a tribe that had a, a designated worldview or religiosity associated yeah. with that. So, so I was, the practice was deeply innate. Yeah, you were creating a, a, a ceremony and associated meanings that allowed you to work with what had happened to you and allowed you to be safe, uh, you know, inside of something that had fragmented inside of you and that's so it and, and there was and what this what i'm hearing is that you know the like something innate in you developed that and in another culture you would have been brought in and given a space to encounter that and make meaning with that um in a way that was actually held and it. Uh, it sounds like that's what eventually happened in sri lanka that's it. So it led me. So my great fear, which is interesting, and I share this for the benefit of, the, uh, uh, of those who perhaps are, are confronting fear, because I think that's actually the true epidemic we're, we're amidst, is, is this that's pandemic good. of fear, is I was deeply afraid of that which actually made me feel most alive, which is travel and other humans, you know? And so uh, it was actually existentially afraid. And so the, the, the medicine... What's that? The land, the, the land can't absorb the water. The thing you most need, the thing that's most innate to you is the thing that suddenly you can't, you know, connect with. Exactly. Yeah, I love that metaphor where you talked about that as well. It's like you actually take that weed, of, if you will, like these, these, scrub, these shrubs and you actually kind of move with them such that then the land can then absorb those nutrients again and become back in its wholeness. And for me, that is exactly it. Like in Sri Lanka, it was like, that was my exposure therapy, right? That was my cure. Instead of Prozac, I went into, okay, I'm going to go as far from my reality, literally the opposite side of the world from where I grew up, my biggest fear, and go into a country at civil war, but also one of the oldest living Buddhist civilizations on the world, mirrored the paradox I kind of felt within. And in that, exactly right, I found this incredible notion of of an aspect of, of this deep medicine, which was actually just like I felt the opposite of belonging in being jumped, right? Like the violence and trauma of yeah. that, seeing someone who is actually being seen as being traumatized and then being put in the middle of that circle, both like both in reality and metaphorically, and then having an entire community do a dance to make them feel back in their rhythm, back in their wholeness. And I was like, that is but, to me the medicine. <laughs> but here's, here's the crazy thing, right? About yeah. Healing, which I love about healing and ceremony. The whole community is geared towards that woman's healing. So everyone yes. bringing her back into her beat. And so it's all about her, except her healing is catalyzing yours. Yes. And, and that is where it gets magical when one of us heals it th that act of healing sets off um healing all around it in ways we don't we can't even comprehend it's like so intelligent and that's where ceremonial spaces are phenomenal everything that happens be it terrifying triggering but it is working 
on all of us simultaneously. And that's where in ceremonies, we feel our presence with each other. Um, but then we feel the presence of that other intelligence working in the room with us of something, the mystery, the great, the spirit, uh, God, and, and, and just the, that it's, it's, it's happening in ways that are intricate beyond what we can comprehend. And that's what happens when we go into nature, we start to encounter that. That's what happens when we heal. That's what happens when we come together. Um, so yeah, it's a, I love that man. Really cool. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, there's so many things I could say about that. Cause I would, it's interesting because and I'll just touch on it briefly, but the, the notion of ceremony in the context of like doing the work of another. And I think that's, what's interesting about the context of say, for example, a sharing circle, which sometimes, uh, you know, just speaking authentically, like sometimes if I'm still, for example, in a, in my own deep process or my own deep medicine, the linearity of someone intellectualizing, I feel like, like my preference is like, oh, actually I don't, I don't want to go to that place yet. But I think that there is the idea of sharing and how we, how we actually are catalysts for another and the degree to which in some ways, I think we, we, that the work of another can be a deep catalyst for our own. I feel like what I, what's, what's come up for me is oftentimes exactly as you say, that we're, we're ostensibly, I feel like there's like a, and, and, and this is goes to my own belief, but I feel like there's this great guy in intelligence and it's like, we are consciousness seeking to wake up to itself. There's a wonderful guy. I'd love to tap you into actually, because I think you would really resonate with him, but he's a mathematical cosmologist and his name is Brian Swim. And what I like about the way he thinks about nature, right? So we talk about the, the, the modality of nature. And I think you could probably, you or uh, Arrhenius would probably have a much more uh, beautiful notion of this. But he talks about the dynamic tension that actually exists in our world. So like where the earth exists in dynamic relation to, for example, the dance with the sun and the moon, right? How that unique dance in relationship has enabled life as we know it to flourish in the way that it has. And on a more microcosmic level, take, take like the, the red-tailed hawk and the white-tailed rabbit, you know? They have each evolved in relationship in some ways to the dynamic tension of their predator-prey relationship, right? Like the eyesight of the hawk has become more adroit, more adept. The depth and cunning of the rabbit is actually what it is because of the dynamic of the red tail. And it's, it's my belief, whether right or wrong, I can't say, that what, when we see challenges like COVID or which is on the macro or the micro of our own particular challenge, you know, use another example, say like, you know, a lot of people have on a physical level gut issues, you know, well, that's probably deeply related to the microbiome, which is the, the soil of the earth, right? Which is the key to our sort of regeneration, as you mentioned with the shrubs and, and ostensibly my feeling is, and whether right or wrong, I can't say is that ultimately there's a great intelligence, call it the guy in mind, which is consciousness seeking to wake up to itself. Kind of like what you've shown with nature, right? Nature is seeking to wake us up to that notion of like how we can all get back into that balance, back into that alignment. And I, it's my belief, I think, even with this pandemic, not to make light of those encountering you know, significant uh, challenges as a result, economically, physically, but I feel like it's in some ways, it's like 
even dis-ease is, 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 is rightness seeking to come into alignment with itself. It's like, it's like seeking to bring you back into balance. And we're seeing that, right? There's dolphins swimming in the Venice Canal. And I can see Catalina from here. I mean, it's, yeah. nature has actually had a chance to take a little bit of a breath. Um, anyway, I got super excited there for a moment. But I, I just wanted to, I wanted to share that, gentlemen, with you because I feel like as you work with the metaphor of the track and this notion of helping people uh, which I think I, I actually, I, I got to come to South Africa. I want to experience, I want to yeah. hear more about your retreats, but, uh, and I'll, maybe I'll bring some, some people out, but that's one of actually my pieces of work is I like to find what I feel like is those who are holding a resonance, if you will, uh, you know, and I like to play with different metaphors, but like the lighthouses, you know, yeah. and, and, just, and, and point people, like show them how to sail in that direction, if you will. And I, I got an intuitive sense. I was like, after the experience I'd had with my father, um, which, which was also following the track, right? I, I didn't know where I wanted to go, but I literally had lunch with someone who then basically tuned me into all yeah. of these places that we wound up going. And, 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 and needless to say, Londolozi, I'd love for you to just share quickly because I know we've got to go relatively soon here, but can you share for people what you're creating in the context of your sort of transformational work now back on this land that, that is so deeply rooted in, in your history? Yeah, I mean, again, it came, so, you know, my path went my own healing, uh, then starting to run ceremonies all over uh, the world, particularly in the United States. Uh, and then there was a very strong pull to come home and connect people with uh, this ancient art form of tracking as a way to, we're going to go tracking, but what we're actually imagining is how do, how do those of us who feel called move forward in a different way? Because to me, uh, this is also a kind of activism because someone who actually finds an authentic life, they become a lighthouse. They, people start looking at them and saying, they are the way they're living. There's something about that. I, I, I don't There's something about that person that I feel drawn to. There's something about the way they are. And so they're not trying to do it. They're just attending to their own work and they're starting to live differently. They're starting to imagine a life, make up a different path live in their medicine way. And that's always original. You know, people who do that are originals. So what I'm doing now is I'm using tracking to help people go deeper, discover that path, discover the path of living as a tracker in all dimensions of your life. Uh, we, we do track some lions, we do track some animals, but what we're teaching is we're teaching the tools of the tracker that you can go and apply in your integration anywhere in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's been amazing for me to come home and, and connect people with that way and, and create ceremonies here back at Londolozi. You know, it's like my, my own alchemist journey out into the world and then back home. <laughs> yeah, it's been good, man. I, 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 I like how you went so deeply within and now at least uh, it, it occurs to me. Uh, I don't know how it feels to you, but it occurs to me that you've like you're, you're feeling very on track, you know, like in, in regards to now you may not feel on track at the moment based on 40 days of integration. I have no idea, yeah. but, but in the context of saying, Hey, Whoa. Okay. Like, like the Venn diagram you pointed out, it makes it, it deeply makes sense to me. And because it feels like only you would have that unique way of being a translator for those realities. Yeah, and I'm here to serve, you know, every, whenever I get still, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm always going to be a guy who goes into solitude, but then I'm, I'm here to serve, uh, I'm here to serve, and yes. I, want, I believe that we are trying to wake up, consciousness is trying to wake up, and 
I just, I, it's not like I've got grand ideas about myself. I just do what I know to do and what, and actually I do what feels fun to me. And it yes. feels fun to get people together and take them tracking and have these conversations. And there's not like some great strategy in it. Like I just attend to what feels good. I follow that feeling and that's taking me in really uh, great direction. So uh, I love it. So anyway, people listening, uh, amazing conversation. Thank you guys. Uh, thank you Boyd so much. And thank you guys for listening. Um, first of all, get the book lines, a tracker's guide to life. I mean, you've written a couple books actually. Uh, but that, that, uh, that book, I like blew me away. I, I, I couldn't stop listening to it. I just kept going back to my camper van and literally sitting with my portable speaker. And then I went through the entire 40 days. Um, but, uh, of the, of the journey that you just went, um, on boydvardy.com. But where, I mean, I just pointed it out a bit, but like, are there any other things that you're up to that you'd love to draw people's attention to? Uh, no, I mean, I think that, that I'm, I'm really proud of Lion Tracker's Guide. That's the most favorite book, uh, that it just came out of me. So I would love people to check that out. And then our podcast is the Track Your Life podcast with Boyd Varty. Um, and that's always just the first season is 40 days and 40 nights alone. And then, uh, I'm just really feeling into what, what the next call to adventure might be. And so that'll be out probably in the next couple of months, you know? So, um, yeah, uh, those are the main ones. And then boydvarty.com always, if you want more information on retreats or tracking retreats and some of the work we're doing in South Africa. And then what we'll be starting up in America once this weird time of uh, enforced slow awakening is, is over, you know? <laughs> exactly. Once yeah. we're into this, uh, once we're on the other side. Um, well, Boyd, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, man. I think that, uh, look, we're all works in progress. We're all fig- just figuring it out. But I, I, I admire... I admire anyone who's doing the deep, deep work to both be the best, most authentic version of themselves. And, uh, especially when that involves tracking into new territory and, uh, and I sense and, and, and know that you are doing that. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an inspiration. And I think I, I love your, your heart of service and, um, yeah, this won't be our last conversation, my man. Thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you so much for your work. Yeah, pleasure. And there you have it. One of my favorite conversations to date on the podcast. Uh, I hope you got a tremendous amount of value from it. I absolutely loved it. It will not be my last conversation with Boyd Vardy. Definitely go check out his book. Um, I listened to it on the audio and think it's definitely worthwhile. He's such a great storyteller. Um, and his 40 day, uh, podcast, man, it was, uh, it was, it was good. It was good medicine for our times. Well, I'm, I'm wishing you guys all the best. I'm so grateful for your time and attention. Um, sending you all so much love. If you're getting value out of the podcast, it'd mean the world to me. If you left a rating and review over on iTunes, uh, your five-star ratings help us move up in the algorithm and grow this community. And it also helps me get epic guests. Um, so if you can take you know, 20, 30 seconds to do that, I'd love it. Um, as always, you can leave me feedback at Michael Trainer on all social channels. And I so love when I hear from you. So I'm grateful for your time, grateful for your energy, wishing you guys so much love. Please go out there and live your inspired life.